Podcast where we take you on a time hopping journey through queer cinema going decade by decade to, to discover how it has evolved over the years. So we are back to record another episode. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm with my co host Manish Mother. Manish, uh, are you ready to talk about our latest queer film? Yeah, I'm so, so excited. Yeah, this is one that, you know, yeah. in terms of critical reception, definitely way up there. We're we're in 2017 now, and we're going to talk about Call Me By Your Name. Uh, not a, mo- a movie not without... Um, not without its detractors, let's say, uh, but critically very yeah. well thought of. And there was a lot of kind of Oscar buzz around this movie when it came out, most of which, I, and to my memory, you'll know this better than me because you're like the Oscar pundit. Um, most of it kind of went by the wayside, right, in terms of nominations? Oh, I have a lot to say <laughs> about the, the Oscar and the um, the release of this movie and basically like... Yeah, all, how, how all that went down, I have a lot to talk about. <laughs> okay, why don't we just, like, jump into that? So, you know, I yeah. think I think everybody knows what Call Me By Your Name is, and if you don't, it's, you know, this kind of older man, younger man relationship. I think uh, Elio, the, one of our lead characters, what, he's, like, 17, 16, 17? 17, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, our older character is a graduate student. So there was a lot of pushback when it came to that, like I know people, I have people that I consider friends that I follow on Twitter who are like disgusted by this movie because of the, yeah. the age gap was just too much for them. They just can't deal with it. And uh, <laughs> I would venture that many of the people um, that had issue with it are young um, or um, have not been in gay male relationships because I think this is really common. Um, especially if you go back like more than five or 10 years, uh, because, you know, I think things are more open now than they ever have been in terms of gay relationships, but there is a kind of limitation of who you can date and who you can see. So you're going to have a lot of age gaps and a lot of age differences in relationships. So it, so I watched it and I had like no issue with it whatsoever. And then I came out of the theater and everyone had lost their mind about how, and I think so much of it is because, <laughs> because he looks like a boy <laughs> and Army Hammer looks like a man. Yeah. Like he's like six yeah. foot four, like 250 pounds of muscle. Like he's a big dude. Um, and I think that probably had something to do with it. Like just the eye test. Uh, people probably yeah. had an issue with it, but where, well, the other what thing was your is stance like, on it? Oh yeah. No, I mean, first of all, like Army Hammer is playing like, I think almost a decade younger than he actually is, or at least like, six seven years um because like right now i'm looking at wikipedia and it's saying oliver is supposed to be 24 <laughs> and uh, army hammer was 31 when he made this yeah he so, looks like late 20s early 30s like he definitely looks. so like he looks like he like not only you're right in that like he's very tall and like built but he looks so much more i think mature than he's supposed to be and like 
in some ways, I think the, I mean, it's perfect casting because he has that, like, he has that, like, look, right, of, like, you know, he's kind of, like, the prototypical kind of, like, fantasy for young gay boys, mm-hmm. right? Tall, blonde, muscular, I mean, <laughs> um, blue eyes. <laughs> no, because, like, I mean, that's just kind of thing that, like, you know, like, that conventionally handsome thing always like, kind of catches you know, your attention until you realize, like, you know, there are other types of people out there. But, like, <laughs> um, but I think that, like, the casting makes sense. And I, I think, like, for me, like, why I don't really consider this movie all that creepy is I think it's, like, firmly in the, um, like, viewpoint of the younger character. Mm-hmm. And it's about, like, him having that crush on an older guy and it's not I mean like Army Hammer's character we can get into this is like kind of a little bit more unknowable and like there's a reason why like he disappears I mean spoil I mean spoiler alert but like <laughs> there's a reason why he like is not in the end and that like the scene is like the final scenes are him via phone not mm-hmm. in person because he's he's not the protagonist so like yeah it makes it makes sense to me that this movie is about someone who's like on the cusp of adulthood and someone who's like a couple years older than that. Like I think they're supposed to be what, seven years apart, six years apart. Yeah. I mean, if it's supposed to be so, like, you yeah. know, 17 and like 23, 24, uh, since he's a, yeah. a graduate student, like it, it, I mean, it's, it's the one thing that, um, casting wise, like doesn't quite fit for me. And I think of course that army hammer is tremendous in this movie. I think he's phenomenal, mm-hmm. but he does yeah. look like almost like he's more of a peer of Michael Stuhlbarg's character, uh, Elio's father than he, yeah. and he should be like directly in the middle, uh, between those two generations. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are moments where you're like, and he does a good job of playing it kind of boyish and energetic and emotional um, that maybe you wouldn't get with an older character. And it also doesn't help that Timothy Chalamet, like he's like he's all arms and legs. He's skinny. He's like the yeah, he's, he's like the twinked dream. You know, it's just like there's yeah. such a dramatic difference between these two. But I think you bring up a great point that if this movie, you know, or the book it was based on was on Oliver's perspective then this would be a real tough sell. Um, like, you really do have to stay with the younger mindset here, or else it could become predatory, it could become creepy. Um, but I also think, like, you know, a lot has been said about Timothy Chalamet as an actor the last five years or so, and, you know, I'm just going to join the chorus of, like, he's incredible. Like, there's so much he does here in this role that is nonverbal, um, which is necessary yeah. because if you read the book, the book is all about kind of his internal monologue and his internal process. And of course, in most movies, you don't get the opportunity to do that unless you're going to do like 90 minutes of voiceover throughout the movie and mm-hmm. no one wants to watch yeah. that. Um, so it kind of falls on him to kind of take in information and process it with his face um, in a way where it's not – where you're not looking at it like, okay, you're acting with a capital A. Like we get it. Um, and I think he's really – he's really kind of an expert already at this young age of how he uses his body and how he uses his facial expressions to uh, to communicate um, that a lot of actors don't get 
after, until like years and years and years of training. So I was watching him here, just even on rewatch, just like noticing different things uh, that he's going through, especially kind of knowing how it ends and knowing what his state of mind is throughout the movie. I think it does kind of reward you on a second watch. Oh yeah, for sure. I uh, definitely was like, um, really just so but i mean like this movie's all about like touch and looking and you know the eyes and like body language and i think that like timmy chalamet is so good at that i mean like i mean i've seen him i mean his other roles right like ladybird beautiful boy um oh god little women what's the yeah oh yeah of course little women <laughs> like how, how could i forget my beloved Lori? um like he's just like like just just like the way his like body like like you're you're saying he's all arms and legs but just like the way that he like uses that is just so like it feels so um natural but you can tell everything's a decision you know like he's not like he's not just like fumbling around like he like he knows what he's doing and i and so I, yeah, I mean, his performance, like when I rewatched the movie, it was just so like, I mean, I was like really like, you know, in 2018 on Oscar night, like leading up to the Oscar, Oscars, I was like, he could actually win. And I was like, I think he should. Um, and this was like before, um, before Daniel Kaluuya got nominated when I, where he was like a pipe dream, but I was like, I don't know if it's actually going to happen. <laughs> so like once, once Kaluuya was nominated, I was like, you know, on his train. But like sure. before Timothy Chalamet, I was like, I would love for him to win because this is like, I think, you know, we always say, you know, the young actresses get that stars born Oscar win. And I'm like, it'd be amazing if Timothy Chalamet won that because, you know, it's such a like, I mean, he had obviously been working before, mm-hmm. but it's such a, you know, like introduction moment, like breakthrough. Like I know, I mean, I guess I had seen him in things, but did not register that it was him. Like, wasn't he in, in Interstellar? Yeah, but that I didn't realize that until I think I had seen this movie, and then like kind of. It's went a very back. small role. It's like, very he's quick. Not, I think he is. Um, uh, Casey uh, Affleck's son is that who that is? Something like whatever. That. Yeah, and, so, like he's in. But you bring up, like someone's son. You bring up the thing with yeah. the Oscars, and it's something that so rarely happens, yeah. right? For the young, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better term, the young male ingenue uh, doesn't usually win right. the Oscar. That's usually the the actress award, and then old men tend to older men tend to win this, and older women don't tend to. So it would have been nice to to have that flipped. Um, and also in a very deserving performance. It's not like, oh, just because yeah. he's young and good looking. No, this is a great performance. And you mentioned the choices he's making. And it made me think I had a, I can't remember who it was, but I had a discussion with this friend of mine about like, even the way he sits, like, you're just like, yeah. I don't know oh, that yeah. anyone's ever sat like that on screen. And it is a thought process. Uh, but we introduced this, yeah. you were going to rant and rave, I'm sure about how, um, how this movie was handled in terms of its release uh, and its Oscar hopes. So why don't you go ahead and jump into that? Okay. Are you ready for this? Because it's a whole thing. Okay. I'm ready. I'm comfortable. Go. Okay. So this, okay. Call me by your name debuts at the 2017 Sundance film festival. Okay. Now this is not a Sundance movie in the way that 
you know, we always think about Sundance movies, right? Like, this is a very arty, European, mm-hmm. you know, like, sexually charged, like, it's not a big budget movie, obviously, but it has that, like, I mean, you know, it's written by, you know, James Ivory. <laughs> like, yes. yes. Of the Merchant Ivory <laughs> collaboration team. So it's very much in that vein. Whereas, like, Sundance movies are very, like, um, you know, paid for by my friends yeah, <laughs> kind of thing. Quirky. Yeah. And so, it, so like, that was weird because why is this movie at Sundance? Like, this is definitely, like, it should have been a, a Cannes premiere yes. type movie. Um, if not Cannes, then Telluride or Venice um, or Toronto. But, so this movie gets, this movie gets premiered in, at Sundance and obviously is gets rave reviews there, but like rave reviews at Sundance don't mean anything <laughs> because people are exhausted. No, the people are exhausted from the previous year's Oscar season. Mm. They're in the midst of it still. So they're just like over it. And it's like new movies after a whole year, right? Uh, you know, festival fever, right? We're also, we all kind of get into it. Um, I'm making my Oscar prediction list for the following year. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's saying Call Me Your Name is like the movie to watch. And a lot of the like film Twitter people that I follow are also gay. So like this movie's like big. And right. so for an entire year I'm hearing about Call Me By Your Name. And yet like there's no release date, nothing. And you know, it's going to it's making all the stops at all the festivals, it's like doing everything that has to be done and but then, like, by the time the movie comes out to the public, it's, like, it's, I think I saw it at the end of November of 2017, almost 10 months after <laughs> its premiere. And, but, because, like, people who, like, I mean, I was listening to my Oscars podcast, Little Gold Men, and, like, they were saying how they were, like, almost sick of the movie because they had seen it at all these festivals. And, like, um, one critic I was reading one critic I read was saying how like he had he'd seen it four times before it had even come out to the public because of the festivals and also he had moderated a screening of it, etc. <laughs> and not only all these like film critics on film Twitter who go to these festivals are like tweeting out like their little inside jokes about it, making the gist and everything. So like, by the time I'd seen it, I felt like I had already seen it because I just like knew everything about it. And like the one thing everyone was talking about was like Army Hammer you know, eating the peach or not eating the peach. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's, and so like whatever, like I felt like all the surprises of the movie, I felt like were like almost ruined, mm-hmm. um, which is like whatever. Like, I mean, this movie isn't like a twist movie, obviously, but like how it ends. Like I even knew like the ending scene. Oof. And um, which, like the thing is that like, it's not, it's not anyone's fault really. I mean, it is some people's fault, but like, I also don't have to don't have to read every coverage of this movie, of course, you know. Once I kind of realized that like all these reviews were saying and all these tweets were saying, I didn't have to like follow that. Right. So finally I see it in November and I'm like ready to be devastated with all I'm hearing. But, like I wasn't dev- devastated because I was expecting it, you know. Mm. Um but of course I loved the movie and like it instantly became one of my favorites um of the year. And like I mean I I don't know if you know this, but like I'm like miss like i love like the year 2017 for like movies because i think it's like an exceptional year mm-hmm. and like this is like the hill that i'm going to be dying that on was a until. great year yeah wasn't uh you know like if you go if you go on letterboxd and like filter through the 2017 and just see everything that came out that year it's like wow 
And even the Oscars year, like Oscar season, I think this is one of the best Oscar seasons. I don't think we talk about it enough because we had like amazing movies in the running. We had some great like Oscar villains, mm-hmm. you know, three billboards, of course, and Darkest Hour. Um, <laughs> like, those made for great punching bags, you know? Yes. Was that so, the, was it the, the same year that, that The Shape of Water came out? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. This is, this is Shape of that was Stuhlbarg's okay, year, is, right? He was in like three fantastic movies Stuhlbarg that year. Yeah, he was in this movie. He was in The Post, and he oh, was in right. Call Me Your Name. Post. That's right. Um, yeah. You saw Tracy Letts, who was in The Post and Lady Bird, mm-hmm. and probably was somewhere sneaking around the Call Me By Your Name set. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he seems to be in that like writer's crowd with James Ivory, but like, yes. no, but I, I, I mean, but the thing is that like, um, the I think Sony's Pictures Classic, who distributed the film, like, I don't think they knew, or I don't think they really cashed in on, like, the anticipation of this movie. Because they released it, I think, around Thanksgiving weekend, which is already so crowded. And, like, this is the the same, around the same time as, like, Thor Ragnarok, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, that just, you know, this movie, like, it definitely is a November-type movie, but, like, probably should have come out a little bit before. And they only, like... They really, um, they really like leaned into like the platform release almost to the point where like, like this movie, like no one really knew like when this movie was coming out and like when they could see it. And I don't think they even did a wide release until January. And like it's just like well then this is a whole year of like yeah. anticipation from Sundance. It's just kind of like this movie. I think. I you know I have the box office here. Um, I mean, they made forty-two million dollars. I mean, off a four million dollar budget, so like it obviously made a profit. It was successful, but like this forty million dollars. But this this isn't a movie that was designed to. I mean, like it's great that it made money, but that's not why you make this movie. You make this movie to win awards, right? I mean, this is a movie you expect. Yeah, but I think that like the box that like. I think what I'm trying to get at is that, like, the headlines around this time were always, like, Call By Your Name is disappointing. Is Call By Your Name out? People, you know what right, I mean? No, like, I, I, remember, like were, I remember that like, storyline going around. It's and, felt very deflated. And it's, it's one yeah. of the things, like, I, you know, I can't truly get into Oscar prognostication like you do. I, I refuse because it just yeah, it yeah. makes me so angry. Um, and part of the reason is what you're talking about here. where And this, this seems to happen, I don't know, every two or three years. There's a movie like this. That comes out and all the all the pundits, all the critics have seen it for like eight months and no one – unless you live in New York or L.A., no one else gets to see it. And it's annoying because they're all talking about it and it's hard to ignore, especially if you're a movie fan and you kind of want to see all the best movies, then you're looking forward to that. And then you got to hear – you know, when it first comes out, you got to hear it's oh, it's the greatest movie of all time. There's never been a movie like this. And then three months later, it's like, yeah, this is very good. And then three months later, yeah, it's okay, but I've seen it a lot. And it's just like, you know what? I'd like to see it once. You know, yeah. And we'll talk about this again, I'm sure, when we cover Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's a very similar, oh similar process. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you know, and it's and it's and it's frustrating as a film fan for someone who would pay to go see this and even like honestly even if if that year if in 2017 you said like oh you can't see this unless you pay five bucks extra i would have paid the five bucks extra 
I would have gone to see it, but like it's ne- it's only available because they have this like platform release, which like honestly, yeah. like does this even ever work anymore? It seems like this always bites movies in the ass. Like just like you know, it's so much. And you can correct me if I'm wrong because you, you know really about it. you know a yeah. lot more about this than I do. But so much of what wins tends to be like what has the momentum at the end and you can't have 11 months of momentum. There's no movie that can yeah, carry exactly. That. And that was the thing, like, um, like the marketing of the movie, I felt like did not even ramp up as much. I think by the time this movie was supposed to come out in November, I think everyone was just kind of exhausted mm-hmm. and like, there was just no push for it. I mean, this movie did get, you know, a good number of Oscar nominations. Like it won, it got best picture, uh, best actor. Um, it did win best adapted screenplay, and um, what else? Uh, best original song. It got, oh, and uh, I think that's it. I think there's just four. Um, and uh, yeah, like definitely, you know, Army Hammer and Michael Stuhlbarg were in the running for best supporting actor. Um, and uh, the director, obviously, Guadagnino was, you know, up there. And, yeah, it was just, like, you're right, like, that momentum. And then once it kind of, like, got different... I mean, the thing is that, like, for... Like, I think the kind of ideal scenario is, like, Phantom Thread, which kind of, like, had that mystery. No one had seen it Mm -hmm. until, like, December. And then it just kind of burst on the scene at the right time and, like, got a lot of Oscar nominations. Yeah. And also made money and also, like, you know, is a classic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, calling out your name, I think, is just, like, it's just such a frustrating thing because there was so much buildup to it. But then by the time it actually comes out, everyone's just kind of, like, deflated by it. And um, I, I, mean, I think it really hurt. But and Because I also felt like the only people who were really championing it, you know, at this time was, like, where are the gay people? Mm-hmm. They're, like, the gay people on film Twitter. And, like, I I don't know this sort of, like, controversy, quote-unquote, about, like, the age difference or whatever really had an impact on the Oscar chances. I don't think so, because I don't I really don't think anyone with any, like, real power, like, thought of it that way. I uh, think I that's think just so. something that's, like, on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, like, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to get into, like, that whole thing again, <laughs> but I just felt like, I, yeah, I felt like this movie could have done better at the oscars i think i could have made more money like i'm like i mean a movie like this that like the kind of like indie kind of arty film like sometimes they do make money like ladybird made a lot of money yeah. so did shape of water so did um i mean i'm just thinking about this year but like this 2017 year like um the post made a lot of money like these movies do have potential to sort of like break out and like make a lot of money and kind of be, have that like, like that buzz going. Right. But I think with this movie, just like, I don't know, I just got kind of lost in the shuffle because of its prolonged release date. And it's really a shame because I, you know, I, these days rarely spend too much time getting worked up about like, Oh, the movie that I really liked didn't get nominated. And I think, 
I think I've been cured of that mostly because Guillermo del Toro won an Oscar and now I'm like, well, everything else is gravy at this point. Like, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't even matter. Um, but the fact that Michael Stuhl- Stuhlbarg didn't get nominated is, is borderline criminal. Like, I think if you, if you look at it from like an efficiency perspective as far as like how much time on screen he has and how great he is, it may be one of the greatest single performances in cinema history like i think it's perfect like i think every mm-hmm. single moment he's on screen like you're it's like you want more of him but you also know that this isn't his story and that's why that last that last speech which is just so beautiful and so heartbreaking that's why it lands because he is he's telling his son this is your story this is your time yeah. and how lucky you yeah. are to experience something this deep for something to hurt you. This, this much means that it means something. And like his delivery of those lines, I just like, they honest to God should teach that scene in every acting class, in every film class from now till the end of time, because there is nothing you can do to improve upon it. Um, and I like that Luca knew, I think what he had in that scene and the camera almost doesn't move. It's just like, okay, no. I'm just going to set this up and show you these two faces and watch, you'll watch Timothy Chalamet process it. Um, as a teenager would, and you'll watch Michael Stuhlbarg impart the, maybe the greatest wisdom this boy will ever receive in all the years he lives right now. And I'm just going to set the camera up and let it happen because I just don't even want to get in the way of this. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, this is really the, uh, kind of crowning moment of the film, or at least like one, I think like top like three highlights of it is because it's just like what you want to hear you know what i mean like every queer kid man like yeah (laughs) that was my reaction to it was like oh my god like and my parents were as wonderful as they possibly could have been um when i came out like they they didn't react poorly but it's it's a hard process for a parent and like honestly if you're going to be a parent and you and like someday your kid may be queer just watch this this is what you say this is just quote it because it's perfect it's what i mean even as a 40 year old watching this i'm like god i wish someone would say that to me now like this is this it's beautiful, but especially as like a sixteen or a seventeen year old just figuring everything out and trying to pinpoint what and who you are to have someone, especially your father, but any figure like that just tell you like I accept you and it's okay. Everything is fine. Yeah. Like no matter how much you hurt right now, it's okay. And I was just like, Oh my god, where was that person? <laughs> Like, we all deserve that moment, <laughs> especially at that period in our lives. Now, did you um, – so I, I've heard people say that, like, this monologue is him admitting to being um, – or not admitting, but kind of hinting that he might be bisexual or have had – uh, you know, same sex attraction or encounters. Did you get that feeling from him I, that he was sort of admitting to that? I think the beauty of the scene is you can read it that way, or you can just yeah. read it as like we all have that one love, 
especially yeah. at that age, that is so intense. It could have been a woman. It could have been a man. It could have been any gender uh, on the spectrum. Um, yeah. So I like that you can read it that way. I didn't get that when I first watched it, but like as I rewatched it, I can see it. Like I can see how you can take that from it. And if you took that from it and that's powerful, take it and run with it. That's totally fine. It's not like there are some, there are some readings of scenes in movies where I'm like, no, that's just, that's not supported by what's on screen. That's just not, that's not happening. I mean, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but this, like, this gives you that freedom. Um, which is, you know, I'm glad that it was, you know, recognized for its screenplay because there's a lot of moments in here that are so well written. And it's a movie that could be overwritten really easily because it is so dramatic. And it's, you know, it's first love. Everything is over the top. Everything is crazy. But it doesn't go that route. You know, it just it just goes just deep enough and then almost like pulls back as you know, because as we all are, when we have that first love that we're unsure of, like we we get really dramatic and then we get scared. Right. And we like pull back from it and go like, well, I didn't mean that. That's not. No, 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 no. And the movie kind of does that, too, where it dives deep into the emotion. And then you you see Elio pull back a little bit or you see Oliver pull back a lot uh, because it is scary to really go that dramatic, uh, even if you are truly feeling it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I, It's just so beautiful and you know it's just so warm but and i think that it's also not out of nowhere mm-hmm. you know um i think what i love about this movie and michael stuhlbach's performance is that like he's that guy throughout the whole movie and he's so supportive mm-hmm. and warm and you know loving so it's like feels so inevitable that he would you know, reach out to his son this way and share with his son this way. It's not like he's so distant, but he secretly loves, you know what I mean? Like he's not that kind of, and I'm so like not glad. That kind of family. I'm so glad they didn't do that, right? Because they, it still would have yeah. worked fine if it comes out of nowhere and you're like, oh, he really yeah. is. But like, I like the fact that it's like a natural progression to that moment because mm-hmm. otherwise it's like oh we're doing the oscar speech okay this yeah, is your I, moment i get it but instead it's like you know the way he the way he kind of plays with both oliver and elio separately i think really works uh for the movie and also there's yeah. moments where those two are interacting and he's just watching He's taking it all in, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so when he has the realization, when he gives this speech, you're like, oh, he would know. He's always been around them, you know? Like, he gets yeah. it. He sees the process. And, he's and you know, for him to see this process and, and be supportive of it, it's just, like, a beautiful thing to watch. And there's something about... Michael Stuhlbarg's cadence in that in that speech and his pauses mm-hmm. and the looks on in his eyes it's just like you just you feel like love emanating from the screen and that's not an easy thing to do as an actor to just like pulsate care at a screen and he somehow manages to do it and that's why it's so great that in that scene it's it's almost completely a monologue and Chalamet is just quiet and reserved as a lot of like 16 17 year old boys are when they're getting a speech from their parents right so it's like perfect that he's just like sitting there 
and some of it's taking it in and some of it's he's trying to kind of pull away from it uh but it's just like it's a perfect scene i that's it yeah um i also yeah this is a great dad movie i mean we're recording this day after father's day you know this is yeah a dad movie par excellence. <laughs> but I also want to give a shout out to Amira Kassar as mm. the mother. Um, because I think this is also a good mom movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it gets enough credit for being one. Um, because I think, you know, she doesn't have that. Um, she doesn't have that like big kind of thing, but she does have the scene when, you know, uh, when Elio goes on the you know, little holiday <sighs> with Oliver and has to drop him on the train and he calls her from a payphone or something in tears saying can you come pick me up mm-hmm. and she you know what she does she gets in her car and goes and doesn't ask any questions yep. doesn't you know probe or you know tell him oh like whatever you'll get over him she lets him be sad and it's just there and it's just like these two parents yeah. like and there's a there's a small moment where she just like caresses his neck uh, mm-hmm. and that's, oh, yeah. that's all it is and it, it, it's a really interesting thing given that Chalamet's performance is so physical and almost silent in a lot and, and, and so I feel like Elio is almost more similar to his mom in that way where they don't need yeah. to pontificate and talk. And his dad is the teacher, right? He's the lecturer and he's got to like, okay, here's why we do what we do. And mom just is there and cares. And both of them care in their different ways, but it comes across in a similar vein, right? There's still that care. There's still that love. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's yeah. just expressed in a really different way. Uh, and you're right. She does, she does get kind of forgotten, I think, in a lot of discussions of this movie, but I think she's, I think she's just as important. Possibly because she's not, she's not played by like a name actress. Yeah. You know, like I think if you're played by someone more well known in America, but like superstar, I mean, she's Michael prolific in France. Is that Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you I guess mean. You're right. she's, yeah. But she's totally unknown where he is he's a character yeah. actor and kinda like, oh that guy, I recognize him. So yeah. especially American audiences, we attune ourselves to people we recognize and we immediately trust them. Where she's kind of an yeah. unknown commodity in this movie. But I think she's phenomenal as well. Like I don't I honestly don't think that there is anything coming close to a weak performance in this movie. It doesn't exist. Even no. the even the kind of side characters are only there for like three or four scenes. You're just like, yeah, you feel real to me. You feel like a lived character, a lived experience here. And it, it's a, um, it's kind yeah. of a shame to me that like it seems like the things that get remembered from this movie are shocking moments, right? You have the you know the masturbating into the fruit and the eating the fruit, all that stuff. And then you've got like the memification of this movie with like the kind of dance sequence that you can set to any song. And that's what people yeah. remember from this movie. And there's like a thousand small moments that are that are better performed and better produced than like 99.9% of movies that will come out in the next 10 years. And it's just, it's so rare. You get a movie that feels so real and feels so lived and, and surprises you. Like I remember being surprised at like before the romance started, how in some ways they're kind of combative with each other 
You know, they're kind of poking at each other and they're like, you know, they're really yeah. getting into it. And then like when it's about to happen, you have Oliver actually stop it the at first. Like, no, we can't do this. We shouldn't do this. You know, and he feels responsibility for Elio because he is so much younger and a lesser movie. They would just get to it. Like, it's just like, no, we're not going to we're not going to deal with that. I mean, aspect it takes, of it. like it takes like. I mean, I don't have the timestamp, but it takes like close to, I think, an hour before, like. Yeah, it's more than kiss. halfway through the movie that the and first I think kiss happens. It's like they don't start sleeping together until, like, I want to say maybe like 45 minutes total. You know, like yeah. it's very long. Um, but speaking of their competitiveness, I remember our conversation about Stranger by the Lake, which is that, like, there's that aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think, it, and I mean, we saw, I don't know if you touched on this when we talked about Moonlight, but like, I think it's also there too. Definitely. Um, especially in that middle section, you know, when mm-hmm. like, uh, Kevin is, you know, bullying or like participating in the bullying of, of Chiron. I, and I think it's here too, where it's like, they like, they just don't know how to express that, like the feelings and like. I think what this movie really gets at in that first, you know, first hour, first hour and a half is that feeling of like, you kind of like resent the person that you're attracted to oh, yeah. in a way. Yes. Because like, <laughs> especially at that age, like, I mean, I like, I think the reason why this movie hits so well is that like, especially with among queer people, which is, uh, which is that like, um, you just don't know, like when you have that like first, that first crush, right? You just don't know how to like deal with it. So mm-hmm. it just becomes like resentment, jealousy, anger. Mm-hmm. And then it's not really until you realize, you know, like, Oh God, is that, oh God, what's that line? Like the opposite of hate, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I think like hate and love are both like emotions. It's come with a lot of passion. So it's like easy to mistake one for the other, Definitely. which is, I mean, that's why we see so many like romantic comedies or romance movies where, you know, they hate each other and they love each other because it's like, it's all the same emotion. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I like, that's what I love about this movie. And like, I love that combativeness. I love their competitiveness. Like when they're like playing music or reading or playing <laughs> with each other, but then there are these little moments of like touching, you know, yeah. And um, I found this tweet that I wrote about this movie a while ago, and it's, uh, it's something I, I still think about. Um, yeah, I'm so brilliant. <laughs> good, <laughs> quote yourself. It's, this is good. Yes. <laughs> you know, this esteemed critic, Mitch <laughs> Mather. Um, Comrade name has so many handshakes, basically the only acceptable way for men to touch each other. Mm. And, like, um, I guess I, I just watched the movie when I tweeted that, and, it's, and I was just thinking about, like, yeah, like there's so many ways that like men test each other that's like not supposed to be erotic or sexual or sensual, mm-hmm. but like in this movie it is, you know, just like um, like there's little even subtle ways of like where like Oliver is like um, like even like little subtle ways where like Oliver is sort of like testing like his own attraction to Elio well, that, and like that massage sequence, Elio. right? Where they're playing yeah, volleyball. That's exactly what and, I was thinking about. Yeah. and it's another moment where Chalamet's physical performance is just oh, pinpoint so and perfect. Like, like that recoils a little, like yeah. recoils and then leans into it. And it's just yeah. like, Oh God, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these feelings. And I love the fact that, 
you know, he's very, Elio's very comfortable with his attraction towards women, right? He's pretty confident. He's like, I know I can, you know, if I wanted to have sex with this person, I definitely could, no problem. And then, you know, Oliver enters, and I think it becomes clear that this is the first time that Elio's ever been attracted to a man, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Because he knows how to Mm -hmm. flirt with women. He knows how to engage with women. But he has no idea what to do (laughs) with Oliver. Like, do I... Is it okay if I do this? Is it not okay? Like, can I touch? Should I run away? You know? And then that's why you have those moments of extremity where he's like, you know, putting his clothes over his face and inhaling because he just doesn't know what to do with himself. Like, he doesn't know how to release any of this because, like, he's, you know, everything is confusing, which is what it's like when Mm -hmm. you first realize that you're queer, where you're just like, I don't know, like... In a lot of places, the world says it's not – It's not only is – I'm not sure if it's okay, but it's like it's evil. It's terrible if you do this. So like – Well, even Oliver says yeah. like don't act on these feelings. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like when they're walking in the plaza or like they're in the alleyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just – it's. I mean like it's so complicated. And like I think that's why – like that's why it frustrates me I think when people kind of write this movie off as like predatory without having even seen it. Yeah. Because I think this movie's like – the way it handles attraction and recipro- reciprocation is that it's so much more complex than just like, oh, he's like sees this you know young boy and goes after him. I think Oliver is also sort of fighting these emotions. But because he's not the protagonist, he's the object of mm-hmm. affection – you don't really you don't see that struggles I mean, you don't see that struggle and so like plain, like plainly as you see it with elio but it's there mm-hmm. and I, I think the little subtle ways that even he's sort of figuring it out i think it's really interesting and um tell you didn't smoke i don't so world war ii huh oh uh, no this is world war one Huh. You have to be at least 80 years old to have known any of them. Huh. I've never even heard of the Battle of Piave. Battle of Piave is one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. Well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter... What things that matter? You know what things. Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Because you thought I should know? Because I wanted you to know. 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 I can say this to but you. 
He's saying what I think you're saying. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here. You know I'm not going anywhere. They mixed up all of my pages. They're going to have to retype this whole thing. <laughs> I'm not going to have anything to work on this afternoon. This is going to set me back a whole day. Damn it. Shouldn't have said anything. Just pretend you never did. Or does that mean we're on speaking terms, but not really? It means we can't talk about those kinds of things. Okay? We just can't. Hey. Switching gears a little, I want to talk a little about like mm-hmm. how idealized this movie is and how like idyllic it is in terms of its, you know, the greenery, the like setting, mm-hmm. um, like the house and all like how that all kind of is used to make this into this like fantasy romance mm-hmm. that like probably doesn't ever exist in real life. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think I think if you put this in a setting that is not idyllic, uh, that is like you know, you know, if he was going to class every day, or if he was going to work every day, and then coming home after a hard day's work, like I don't think this movie works. Like I think you need that fantasy element because everything about this is getting swept up in the moment. Right. You can't really I mean, you can, but it's harder to show getting swept up in the moment in a less beautiful scenario. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're like, you know, the maybe the biggest thing they have to worry about is like going into town on their bicycles or going and checking out a dig and seeing what's new there. Like everything is slow and like almost like in terms of romance, almost torturously slow Mm -hmm. where it's, you know, and every moment they're together is kind of this achingly slow discovery of one another and their bodies and everything that goes with it. And I think it's, it's the perfect setting for this, you know, and you can sit around and be like, well, you know, I can't relate to this. This, These are like rich people, you know, they're, they have this house in this beautiful place and everyone plays piano. And, you know, he's off studying abroad as a graduate student and all that. But I like the way it takes it away from reality. Which is why the end of this movie is so brutal, because that's the only time that reality sets in, is when he's gone and when he's distant and when he's on the phone. Everything else leading up to that moment is just perfection, right? Yeah. Until he leaves. So I I think it's the perfect setting for it. And we were talking about, you know, with Carol, how, and even a little bit with Moonlight, about how, like, with Carol, like, you don't really see them, like as this, like, domestic, happy lesbian couple at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, I don't, 
I don't even think that Oliver would call himself queer or we can, we can get into this when we get to the, into our test, but like, um, I don't think that Oliver would even call himself queer or gay or bis. I mean, I don't even know if bisexual was like something that people knew about in the eighties. I mean, I'm sure they did, but like, no, I mean, not just not to be like he'd, totally ignorant, but he'd be one of those, he'd be one of those people who calls himself like bi curious, right? Like, Oh, I experimented. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But like even sees himself people. as like 99%. Straight. Yeah. I mean, he married like, that's, a woman, you know, And, like, I think that it's, like, you know, you can almost think of this house, you know, in this Italian countryside as, like, this sort of, like, erotically charged, like, um, Mm. what's that thing in the the movie Stalker or, like, Annihilation, like, the zone or whatever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's, like, everything is different here. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, once once Oliver goes back to America or wherever, then he's like, yeah, that was that, and now I'm going to go marry, you know, Dakota Johnson, you know, in the sequel. Right. Um, yeah, it's now back to reality, right? Exactly. right? Like, and, like, I mean, yeah. we've all had, I mean, many of us have had situations, maybe not as, like, clear-cut as this, but, like, you know, summer, summer flings or whatever, and it's like, you know, you come back to reality, and it's like, it didn't even happen. Um, and then, but what do you think about Elio? Do you think do you think he'd consider himself queer after this? Is this like such a powerful moment I th- in his young life? I think so. I, I I think so because I think that he was so devastated by it that mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. can't just be a summer fling. I felt like this is like. In some ways, it's like he didn't get the memo that he was in the shimmer, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's going to yeah, carry absolutely. this with him. Like, to him, yeah. this was, like, this was, this was it. Like he could have married was, This was the awakening yeah. of himself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I that, like, that. there's a version of the story where it ends, you know, with Oliver on the train, and Elias goes back home, and he's fine. Like, he takes the train back home, and he is you know upset but he's not like shattered like he is and i think that right. like this movie ending in the winter i it does it ends on hanukkah and year's eve i can't remember yeah. it's like hanukkah mm-hmm. right um yes it ends in like the dead of winter when like all the like hallmarks of that summer italy just aren't there like mm-hmm. they can't go in the pool they can't ride bikes they can't do whatever so it's just like, you know, it's like they just can't, you can't get it back. And, you know, right. next year when they have another student there, it's not going to be the same, you know. Right. It could be. And in that moment, out. like the only heat that he can possibly be close to is that of the fire, yeah. you know, meant to like push the winter away. And that's as close as he can get. And the fact that, you know, <laughs> Guadagnino makes a choice to just, again, just set the camera up. And put it on Chalamet as he just breaks down in front of the fire as the credits roll. It is like one of the most uncomfortable sequences that I have seen in a theater in a long time. Because I think you're trained as a moviegoer like, oh, credits are rolling. All right, we can stick around, but it's 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 time to gather up your stuff and go home. But the, this moment won't let you. It holds you because... He is like just making eye contact with that camera and weeping silently, but weeping. 
And we are forced as the audience to deal with that, to process the destruction of first young love in front of our eyes. And it's like, man, I, I respect the hell out of that choice. But as I was watching it, part of me was like, how dare you? Like, I feel like I shouldn't be seeing this. This is too close. This is too real. I don't want to relive this because we all have that first love that went away and broke us into a million pieces. And I did, I was not signing up to like relive that moment, (laughs) but he just like, okay, here it is. You can leave if you want to, but I would feel, I would also feel bad walking out of a theater as this boy is crying (laughs) his eyes out, you know, it is a really rough last sequence. Oh, I know. And then it just, yeah, that song. Yes. Oh, Jesus. Visions of Gideon. Good Lord. So, can I play some music <laughs> which, there? Which forever will be now linked to this. Yeah. Like, I cannot listen to that without thinking of this sequence, which means I cannot listen to this. Like, well, I, just, I never even like, heard of... Skip, a, I'm not ready. Sufjan Stevens until this movie. And now it's like, and when I see his name, I just think back to the fireplace and when they're riding the just bike. Tears. Yeah. um oh i want to give the name of the cinematographer just because like he's amazing uh that's sayonbu makdipram who is uh, a thai uh cinematographer did suspiria um you know and it's like I, I bring up his name just because, like, the difference between Call My Your Name and Suspiria is, like, night and day. Like, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, like... I'm, like, yeah. I'm honestly shocked that it's the same cinematographer. Yeah. And I'm also very glad that you took on the pronunciation of that name and I did not because I would have completely butchered yeah. that. But, yeah, it's, well, like, I'm sure I did you know, Suspiria well, is but... so dark and yeah. works with shadows so much. And this is, like, you know, lit by heaven, you know, it's just like it's a very different style, um, but it just shows, you know, like a great cinematographer uh, doesn't only do one thing, mm-hmm. right? It's not yeah. like, oh, well, that's his style. Like he's doing a lot of work for Guadagnino here. And and I think it's it's one of those things like that, you know, that scene of that like kind of almost kiss where they're like laying in the grass is like, oh, my God, it's like taken out of a painting. It's just like stunning. Yeah. Like, and there's, and we've talked about this before how there's so few directors and cinematographers that know how to shoot the male form. Uh, but this is one of them. Like, yeah. you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Army Hammer, like being like the ultimate stereotypical, like, you know, Basic. gay crush worthy yeah. <laughs> form. And, you know, I think what Nino knows that. And I think the cinematographer knows that. And, you know, the fact that he's, you know, wearing shorts most of the time, like you get all these, you know, lingering shots of his body without being like, I never, I was watching it and I never felt like, oh, this feels gazy, but it just feels like someone who knows what the male form looks like and his and is showing us as the audience what Elio is seeing. Yeah. Um, the costume design, speaking of that, is by uh, Julia Piersanti. And um, again, like the costume design, like, I mean, we, we talk a lot about, I think, in like the Oscars conversation about like how costume design is always sort of thought about like extreme period 
like dress, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. 1400s or whatever. And like right, how, I mean, right. this is, I mean, call your name is that in the eighties. It's not even modern, but like it's contemporary. It's like of the, you know, modern times, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, you were alive when this movie was set. So barely, <laughs> barely easy, easy. <laughs> yes. No, that's true. But it, you know, it's, I think, you know, you're right that this, this is the type of movie that doesn't get enough press, um, Oscar wise when it comes to costumes, but it's, it's fantastic. Like it really sets you in the time immediately. And although it is quote unquote contemporary, I mean, that's like, you know, 30 to 40 years ago. Um, so things are very different stylistically. Even if you look at it, you know, you mentioned this movie earlier, but a movie like Lady Bird, which is firmly set in the 90s and this firmly set in the 80s, like the costuming is so starkly different yeah. between those two movies. Like you really do feel the 80s existing in this movie. Yeah. And just like, um, yeah, like the, like the short shorts, like we joke about them, but it feels so like mm-hmm. perfect. And you like, Army Hammer yep. like just looks like a dad, like he has that like, like Polish <laughs> shirts and like, you know, um, and, and just like the way the colors pop. Like there's that you know famous kind of salmon, you know, color that Army yeah. Hammer wears. So just like this movie, just like is so vivid in the way it's designed mm-hmm. and the way that it's um, like assembled to create this like, you know sanctuary this you know um oasis i guess is the word i'm looking for um but what else did i want to bring up about this movie um i think that oh can we talk about i mean i guess we kind of talk about this every episode but like the sex in this movie how like there's like none of it except for you know straight or opposite sex (laughs) um but yeah and and all the all the sex between the two main characters is like all the sexual moments are separate. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have one character masturbating into a piece of fruit and then one character hours later, you know, going to take a bite. Right. Yeah. And it, there's always this separation there. And I, you know, it makes me wonder if, you know, because a movie like this, you know, I think it's pretty clear. They thought like, okay, we have a award worthy script here. We, you know, we might win some awards here. And I, I do find myself wondering in movies like this and movies like Moonlight, if they shy away from the actual sex between two men because they're afraid of what kind of reaction that's going to get. Um, from Academy voters, from audiences, or do you think there's like a valid reason for them not showing sex between these two? It's hard for me to separate that because I can't not see the like studio pressure. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) studio pressure. Like I can't not think of like some executive being like, you know, we can't show like any kind of, you know, smashing together. (laughs) I mean, what was the last movie that got significant Oscar chances that did like maybe broke back? Even was that, was that the last, like, I I mean, I haven't watched broke back in, you know, in a minute, but even then the sex scene, like, it's not like, it's not like, um, 
It's it's certainly not explicit, but yeah, like in comparison to other yeah, think, you know gay award worthy yeah. movies, I mean it's like way over the top in comparison. Yeah, because you can you know you can't avoid the fact that those two were actually having sex. Yeah, whereas this you could almost not know. Like if you weren't watching that closely, you'd be like, did they? Oh yeah, I I guess they must have. You yeah. know, like and. And that, like, as a as a queer guy, like, watching that in movies like this, like, does get a little bit disheartening. Um, because it's not even necessarily about gayness or queerness that's the problem. Because there are plenty of award-level movies that have two women having sex. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to two men, we always pull back, like, oh, no, we're not ready. Yeah. We're not ready for that. And, like, when, when is it – when are we going to be ready like when is the time going to be when we can have a movie of this caliber actually have a gay sex scene between two men? Yeah, I, I mean, it could just be that like maybe men have like stricter nudity clauses or like don't mm, even. That's true. Like, are they not? Even, or maybe it's that they don't even have to have like they don't even have to negotiate because like not even like a thing. But here's the. Um, Here's a quote from Guadagnino about this, okay? Uh, This is from the Wikipedia page. Um, I wanted the audience to completely rely on the emotional travel of these people and feel first love. It was important to me to create this powerful universality because the whole idea of the movie is that the other person makes you beautiful, enlightens you, elevates you. And that's why he was not interested in including explicit sex scenes in the film. Yes. Cowardice. Yeah, to me, that absolute means, cowardice. Like, he doesn't. Maybe you know. I don't know if this is him or you know, like he's being a mouthpiece. But to me, that reads like like that he doesn't want to turn off straight audiences. Well, yeah, yeah. that that terminology universality yeah. is what like struck me. Yeah. Like, well, I can't have people not think they don't know what it's like to experience this so we can't possibly have two men having sex and i'm like ah come on like this is it's not that it's not that hard man like it doesn't have to in you know i think i think this is an error that a lot of filmmakers make actually that like it doesn't have to be universal you don't have to be liked by everybody the greatest movies of all time you can find plenty of people that despise them that cannot watch them. Yeah. So, like, just make a great movie. And, like, this is a movie, like, let's be real. This is a movie, yes, it is about young love, which everyone pretty much has experienced. Um, you know, young physical love, maybe not because of asexuality, but everyone's experienced probably something close to this. Um, but you don't have to make every moment of this universal. This is a movie about two men in love and in lust with one another. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you have to hide from it? Just call it what it is. You know, and not just only, go for not it. Not only that, but like one of the virtues of this movie is how it's so not universal. Like it's so specific, yes. like very specific set yeah. of characters in a very specific part of the country in a very specific house. You know, like everything. Well, I mean, you didn't live, you didn't spend your summers in a house like. Where this? do you think this I am right like... now? 
Um, <laughs> I'm amazed you have this great internet connection there. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It, you're right. That's a really great point is that like it's universal in the sense of we've all experienced young love, but it's certainly not universal. And like it is the story of, you know, a 17 year old who's the son of a professor, you know, living in paradise, uh, who becomes attracted to a graduate student who's only there for the season. Like that is the most non universal thing that I could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, I know. And it's just like, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but like, I just can't not see the behind the scenes stuff when it comes to, you know, you know, a pan, like, I mean, in the movie, there's a pan away from them as they're having sex. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's because someone didn't want to show that, you know, like, it's because someone somewhere was like, we can't show this, whether maybe it was in the, in the, in the script writing phase, when you know someone was rewriting or editing you know james ivory draft and they were like you know we can't show this so let's cut it out and then i think that and god knows those ivory movies were never scared of sexuality or nudity like those merchant ivory films there was plenty yeah men women anyone oh i mean hello like uh room with a view is like yes that's exactly what I was yeah. thinking of, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, you know, it does feel like in some ways as a culture, we're moving forward. And in some ways, we're moving backwards yeah. in terms of like how what we're willing to show and what we're willing to do. And it's not like, you know, there's like almost no risk with a movie like this. Like you said, what it costs four million to make. Yeah. Like it's like this this movie, even just with the gay community, was going to make its money back. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really a risk here it's not like you know at some level i can understand you know these big budget big epic movies not wanting to have like gay or trans characters because they're like okay we spent 200 million dollars on this movie we're not taking any we're not trying to get anybody to like picket this movie we're just like we're just trying to make money here but this is not that like this is a movie that in comparison to that is like made with the change in your couch like what do you <laughs> what is the big risk here you know like just yeah. ab- actually go for it yeah and I just want to reiterate that, like, this isn't really just about, you know, me wanting to see, like, action. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's just, like, it's, it's a deeper issue, I, I think. And it's something we're going to yeah. come across, I mean, you know, for the rest of, you know, this decade that we're covering. And then as we get, you know, Definitely. like, into the 2000s, um, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just, it's just, it's frustrating, you know, but... Yeah, um, absolutely. However, yeah, this movie is as close. I think this is like, I mean, one of the best, best movies of the decade. It's definitely a top mm-hmm. film of 2017. And I, I think a very significant yeah. movie for, for queer cinema. Yep, I think this is uh, one sex scene away from being perfect. Yeah. I think this is <laughs> it's the only thing that's, that's really missing. Oh, here. Dave. We forgot to do, like, if there are any other queer movies from 2017. Did we do that? No, we didn't. Uh, so do you know what what other queer movies came out in 2017? Oh, well, oh, we I had mean, some really one, good ones, one, actually. No, we should, we should yeah. talk about this. Uh, Gods and Country, Beats Rats, Princess Sid, Fantastic Woman. Yeah. Beats Per Minute. He's only yeah. got my fave, yeah. Yeah, There's there was a lot. It was actually kind of a... Uh, did you say, I think you said a fantastic woman. Yeah. Um, 
There's, I still haven't seen God's Own Country. It's one that's like been on my list to see for quite a while yeah. now. Um, but apparently I have to be really careful about where I see it because like oh, in yeah, some I places, like some that. of the sex scenes Amazon, were removed. I mean, removed. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. But I think, yeah, but I think those, those were definitely the big ones. Um, yeah, but there were like three or four really excellent um, queer films uh, in 2017, which should be no surprise because as you mentioned, you know, 2017 is just a great year. Like there's so much that came out in 2017. Uh, and I would have been happy to do a podcast on any of those movies, any of those three or four that we mentioned, but it does feel like we kind of had to cover this one like this this feels like kind of the flagship queer movie of 2017 yeah i mean i think gods and country like i know that's been a movie that's been really popular and beach rats of course i mean beach rats is a great movie i love it and i think i think eliza hitman is one of those directors that like she just she hasn't missed yet um, I think just she's incredible and she's one of those directors that I'm like, whatever you're making, I'm watching. Like this is because Beach Rats was a movie I don't even remember. I, I mean, I saw it at home. I think it must have been like on a streaming service somewhere. I didn't know anything about it and just like it completely blew me away. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that lead performance is something truly special. Like, it is, oh my God, just out of nowhere performance that just is just about perfect. Um, yeah, so we had a lot of good options. The other thing uh, I guess to talk about is, and maybe you know this, um, what queer people are involved uh, in making this movie? Because we always kind of want to take a look at, you know, is this like coming from a straight lens uh, in terms of directors and writers? But what about uh, what about Call Me By Your Name? Uh, well, Luca Guadagnino is definitely gay, right? And, he is? Um, I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> And I believe James Avery is as well, the writer. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So it's written and directed by, um, oh, duh. Of course he is. Ismail Merchant, duh. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't, so I don't think any of the actors are. Uh, well, at least not that we not that we're, we know not of. Not that we you know, know of. Like, I mean, Army Hammer seems to be very kinky. Yeah. So like he's definitely he's questionable. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's and definitely Timothy Chalamet just seems like kind of like uh, very straight to me. I know. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, he may fit the twig stereotype, but like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, he's almost a little too gay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, how do you feel about that? You know, with this, but I don't think we talked about this before, but. You know, seeming, I mean, like, seemingly straight actors playing gay roles like this. Yeah, it's, you know, this is a conversation that comes up um, relatively often. Like, you know, it's the idea of, like, there, you know, it more comes up, I guess, with trans issues, right? Um, Where there's, like, there's so many trans actors out there and you're going to have, you know, some relatively known personality play trans instead like this feels kind of gross um and you know for for decades if not centuries straight 
men have been playing gay characters on screen. And I think, you know, I don't get upset by it, maybe just because I'm so used to it. Um, but it's not as if, like, the uh, the actor's world is not littered with queer people. Like, just, there are so many queer actors who could easily play these parts. Um but it, it does feel like they were latching on to a certain amount of star power yeah. in a movie like this. Um, like Timothy Chalamet was like just, you know, just kind of blowing up. Army Hammer, although like not like a superstar by any stretch of the imagination, is known. Um, like you'd see him and people, people pick him out. Cause even if the movies have failed, he's been in big budget movies before. And I think. A movie like this, you know, they, you know, we talked about this kind of universality and blah, 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 and them wanting to pull in an audience that wasn't, quote unquote, just queer. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that, like, when you have the Lone Ranger interested in your film. Right. um, You kind of have to go with that. No, I surprisingly don't care about straight actors playing gay roles. I think there are a lot of reasons why gay actors don't want to take gay roles because they might pigeonhole them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that, you know, this is going to sound so weird, but like in some, like if you have someone like Army Hammer who like fits this role perfectly and someone like Timothy Chalamet who fits this role perfectly in terms of, you know, their style, their vibe, their body, their, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, like I say go with them and don't like force it. You know, someone yeah, else. So it's kind of a if it ain't broke, yeah, type, like <laughs> type situation. Yeah, and I also, but like, I don't really care. You know, I don't want that. Like, I wouldn't want to change this movie because, like, you know, I mean, like, not like, gay enough. Plays the Army <laughs> Hammer role. Like, no, thank you. Ugh, you know, yeah, like <laughs> too pretty. Yeah, I. It does make me wonder how the movie changes um, if you don't cast Chalamet and you cast a young. Uh, out gay actor yeah. in that role because I there's a certain amount of uh, surety that comes from a performance from a from an actor who is gay that doesn't really fit that character like yeah. not that it can't be done but there is that kind of like one toe in both worlds that's really hard to accomplish as an actor when you already know like I'm out and you know part of the reason I'm getting this role is because I'm a gay actor and all that stuff that gets rolled up into it I kind of like the kind of altered reality state that we're in with Elio who's like not sure because he is young and he is to his knowledge before this moment is straight and then has this awakening I think maybe that's easier to play uh, with someone who's not out because once you're out in a lot of ways you're very out right Um, and the the straight experience is very different from the queer experience in that way so some of it may lend itself to having a straight actor in that role Um, but yeah it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing but I I don't know there's so many more things to get upset about in Hollywood and the world that like it's it's hard for me to get real worked up about that I get more worked up about that in roles with trans characters because I think the trans experience is so different from the quote-unquote gay or straight experience it's like a whole different process yeah and i think there is there's a lot to be gained by casting yeah, trans mean, actors uh, in those roles. yeah like 2017 had you know the best film english film winner you know a fantastic woman which had a trans actress in lead role 
And I, I mean, yeah, and if you recast that, I don't think it works. No. Like it's, it feels so grounded in reality because of the way she interacts with the world uh, as a person and as an actress. Like it just, I think if you, you know, either if you have, you know, a male actor essentially play it in drag, or you have a female actor that they give her, you know, some makeup to masculinize her features yeah. a little bit. I think it, it reads very poorly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I draw a dividing line between those. For Me sure. too. Yeah. I think that's definitely different. So I think the last thing to talk about, um, is, well, first, uh, from rewatching this and watching this, what do you think you've learned, you know, about the world, about queer cinema? What does call me by your name teach you? For me, the, the different phases of, you know, attraction and intimacy, I think this movie, I think, highlights really well that, you know, like that, as you were saying, torturously slow buildup. And mm-hmm. in some ways, and that's kind of lost, you know, nowadays with like online dating. Yeah. And it's something like, I mean, I'm definitely not the type to be like, you know, those are the days, you know, or like, you know, <laughs> but in some ways, like, like I, I do want to like transport myself into this movie in, in, in ways that I really don't feel that feel in for other movies. I mean, I, I, it's pretty rare for me to be like, I would love to live in that movie. Um, with Call right. Name, just like the outfits, the music, the setting, the, you know, the, and just that like feeling of like, oh, you know, like this is something that could be real to me at least. And so, and again, like we were saying in, at the top of the episode, which is like, I don't want to, I don't think anyone really wants to be Oliver in this movie. You want to be Elio because, like, that's his perspective. Right. And, you know, that is excitement of, like, attraction, repulsion, you know, love, hate, passion, all that. It's like, wow. Like, and again, this movie really captures the, like, steps to, you know, falling in love and then the steps of falling out of love. And I, I think that's really. I think that's really fascinating, and I think that's why this movie really hits so hard for a lot of people. And and for me, I think yeah, like it really, it really, you know, showcases that that, that progression as slow as it is. With, but it's like it's slow, but like every little beat counts, and everything is a little step further. There's no like for a movie that's all about like sitting around reading on the grass, <laughs> like there's <laughs> almost little to no stasis. Everything is a progression. Yeah. How about you? What'd you learn? I mean, the thing that keeps sticking with me is, and I think a lot of it is because, you know, there were a lot of people like very upset at the thought of this movie before ever seeing it, um, is how important in romance and movies and everything, how important context is. Because if you look at this like, oh, Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet fall in love. That's fucking gross. This 31-year-old and this little boy are falling in love. You know, it's very easy to get very upset about this. But I think I think if you – I can't imagine watching Call Me By Your Name with an open mind and not like falling for this relationship. Like it absolutely works and if if it doesn't work for you, it makes me wonder like, okay, what are you bringing into the movie? Um, what are you not dealing with on its own terms? Because I think this is, 
I mean, you know, this is an extreme statement, but I think this is one of the greatest film romances I've ever oh, seen. Oh, yeah. Like, I just, I just think it's phenomenal. Yeah. And, like, it's, it's so easy to get swept away in it. I think that's something that is, I think that's something that is missing in a lot of film um, in this kind of modern era is I think there's a lot of, like, we're too cool for romance. Um, oh, in really? Films. I haven't encountered that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's a big surprise for you. Yeah. Um, so, and this is one of the, and you mentioned earlier Phantom Thread, and I think those are two movies that are very romantic. Yeah. And, and things that you just don't see very often. And if you do see it, it's in the Oscar movies, right? It's this like separation, like, oh, these are the really kind of uppity, hoity toity movies. Okay, now we can talk about romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one, you know, I, I think Phantom Thread, which is one of my favorite movies ever made, is extreme in a lot of ways. And this, although the movie itself is kind of extreme in this kind of, you know, you mentioned the idyllic setting, it does feel very grounded and very real. And I love the fact that if you kind of dive into the context of Call Me By Your Name, that you will fall in love not only with these characters, but like with love in general. Like just yeah. like you feel it. You feel that romance just kind of, you know, steaming off the screen. And it, you know, it absolutely works. Whether you're gay, straight, queer, whatever, like this romance absolutely works. So that's yeah. what I that's what I took from it. All right, so now we come to the Russo test, which will be interesting because you brought up the idea that, like, maybe one of these characters that is queer in action would not be queer in identity. Apparently right? this is my thing that um, I bring up with every movie. <laughs> yes, yes. No, but I think it's it's an important distinction because gayness, queerness is not just what you do. Yeah. Right? You can, you can enact love or sex with with uh not the opposite sex and not consider yourself gay and that's perfectly within your ability to do so right identity is different than activity so if he doesn't identify as queer which i agree with you i don't think he would i don't think we can call him you know a queer character but luckily there's more than one character here so uh, the first part of the Russo test is the film contains a character that is identifiably, uh, identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or transgender. Um, so are we saying that, that Elio is the identifiably gay character? I, think I mean, there's his like, his like gay uncles or whatever that's going on. Oh, yeah. I, think, I love those queens. I think that falls into stereotypical um, <laughs> stuff, maybe. Uh, yeah, but Elio, you know, so I think, is. Because, like, he's, repul- he's a little repulsed by it, which is also real. I think more than a little. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Sure. I was giving him, you know, the benefit of the doubt. But. I mean, he's like a 17-year-old boy yeah. who's repulsed by life. Right. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's we didn't talk about that scene, but I actually love that interaction. Yeah. Because he still, of course, like goes through with it and has, you know, plays his part. But you can see that in him where he's like, I'm not into this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to be a part of this. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't um, so, love so we definitely have a character yeah. that is identifiably queer. But that character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, so, do you think Elio is identi- is uh, defined by his orientation? I don't think so because I think that, like, I mean, there's this movie is as much a romance as it is like a coming of age movie. So, I think that, mm-hmm. like, 
a lot of his character is him just finding himself and that just happens to include yeah. you know clearness in it right and the third part's pretty obvious. The LGBT character must be tied into the plot in such a way that their removal would have a significant effect. And we talked extensively about how this movie is firmly in the the point of view of Elio. So if you remove him, there's no movie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it has a pretty significant effect on the plot if you remove our one, you know, main queer character. Um, so I think kind of without a doubt, uh, this passes the Russo test, don't you? Yeah, totally agree. I th- I think this is like uh, a very clear pass for me. For sure, I'm really looking forward to like when we get to the older decade. Yeah, like, me too. Like, you know, fifties and sixties. I, I think I think the Russo test will get a little dicey uh, in some of those movies. So so far, it's been pretty obvious, right? Because we've been in this most recent decade. So it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, we're relatively comfortable with having gay people on screen. As long as it's not two men having sex, uh, then we'll we'll be comfortable with it. Uh, um, but I mean, I think obviously we both love this movie a great deal. It's just about perfect. Uh, we kind of gushed about this over the last hour or so. But um, what's coming up next? Manish in, uh, in 2018. Oh, we have, um, I think, the better of the two conversion therapy movies from 2018. <laughs> uh, the Miseducation of uh, Cameron Post. Yes, definitely. Uh, and I saw both of those uh, conversion therapy movies, and I can vouch that that is the better one. Oh, I, I didn't see Boy uh, I don't really care to. Yeah, it's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Uh, it's, got issues for sure um but uh in the meantime until our next episode uh manish where can our audience find you online you can find me on twitter at the manish 89 that's t-h-e-m-a-n-i-s-h 89 also my other podcast it pod to be you which you can find on twitter at it pod to be you and pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts uh and uh dave where can people find you well, you can find my personal account at Dave A. Giannini. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-N-I. Uh, and like everyone else, I have more than one podcast. I have another podcast that is called A Podcast Directed By, where we take a look at films from specific directors. And maybe someday we'll do a, a whole month of Luca if he keeps making uh, making good movies. Although I think my co-host hates Suspiria, so that would be a very spirited episode. So not uh, but you can that. follow... No, not at all. Um, actually, very quick side story. I was watching that movie in the theater, and about halfway through it, I had the thought, oh my god, Mike is going to fucking hate this. Like, I just clearly had this vision, and he was very mad that I was right. Uh, so uh, you can follow that podcast um, at Directed by Pod. And, of course, you can follow both of our uh, our writing at uh, Talk Film Society. So check us out there. And then uh, come back in a couple weeks and we'll talk about this